Today's episode is brought to you by Pan Macmillan, South Africa. Pan Macmillan is part of the Macmillan Group, a big five publisher. Gail, I already know which new release I am most excited about this month. But why don't you tell me yours? Fiona, you're not going to believe it, but I am really excited to read Magic, the story of Desiree Ellis. The local soccer star. Yes, you know how obsessed I am with powerful women. She's been a Banyana Banyana player, captain and head coach. And her story is truly inspiring. It's told to journalist Luke Alfred, who captures her journey from Salt River to the 2023 World Cup. And I believe it is written beautifully. Sounds like it's not to be missed. Well, I am super excited about your domestic noir book, Gail. Little Secrets by Gail Schimmel is in all bookstores right now, and I found it unputdownable. The characters are so nuanced and interesting, and the situation they find themselves in had me at the edge of my seat. I was on the edge of my seat writing it. I didn't always know where those characters were going to take me. Especially Daisy, I'm sure. Especially her. Well, I love the way you ended this book. Your many fans will not be disappointed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hidden Lives of Writers. My name is Fiona Snickers, and I'm joined by my co-host, Gail Schimmel. Gail, how has it been going this week? So my writing week has been a bit dry, and and it's actually made me realize that I think when I've spoken previously on the show about editing process, I've left out one of the steps. Mm-hmm. So I've spoken about how you do structural edit, where they tell you change the story, change the character. And then I think I left out, you then do a line edit. And a line edit is, you know, you've used suddenly 25 times in this paragraph. Please, can you fix that? Um, yes, and that's my crime meet. very often. <laughs> our eyes meet over that one. And there might be some story growth and development, but, but much more subtle. Then you do what I've been doing this week on one of the Katie Gales, which is copy edits. Mm-hmm. And copy edits is with a different editor. Mm-hmm. And it's very much adding commas and fixing spelling and capitalizing and then very occasionally adding a little bit and so it's it's quite tedious and because Kate and I are very unprecious about our writing Mm -hmm. and as a result we don't really mind most of the changes but you still have to go through all of them and there's still going to be a proofread. Right, um, right, right. So, and that one, I'm going to, I'm going to publicly confess our great secret. We just write an email going, yes, we checked it. It's wonderful. We don't look at it. <laughs> <laughs> and by that copy editing stage, it's probably already about the third time you're reading that um, book. So, so yeah, and especially with the with the co-writing process. In fact, it's it's many many more because you keep rereading, and it's just you're so over the book. What about you, Fiona? How's your writing week been? Good. Uh, interesting in a way. As you know, I'm working on some script development for uh, Lacuna, my book Lacuna. I'm working under the supervision of a script supervisor who pointed out to me this week that the motivation for one of my characters is not clear. And I thought it was clear, but it turns out that On the page in a novel, you can afford to be much more subtle about things like motivation than you can on the screen. On the screen, you have to be broader. You have to paint with a broader brush. You have to make your motivations much clearer. And it reminded me of something that I've noticed when I've been reading the work of other writers, when I've been reading my own work, which is quite often you have a character's motivation in your head, but you haven't actually put it on the page. 
Has that ever happened to you? I agree so strongly. And then often what happens at, at editing phase is an editor will say, I don't understand what, why this is happening. And you're like, well, this person's clearly a fool because it's absolutely clear why this is happening. And then you realize it was all in your head. Yes. Um, and you haven't actually managed to transfer your head to the page because that's what writing is all about, really, transferring your head to the page. Yeah, yeah. And that, that was the missing step. And then when you, you've transferred it to the page and you think, okay, this is crystal clear, but then to transfer it to screen, you have to make it even clearer. You have to have much more uh, broad and clear signposting towards a character's motivation. And I've got one particularly evil character in that novel. And people were saying to me, but why? Why does he do the things he does? And I want to reply, because he's a baddie. He's bad. He's evil. Um, but you actually need more explanation than yeah. that. You you need to underpin it. You need to give some kind of backstory and justification for this character you've created. And he is very, very evil, <laughs> let's be honest. I hope one day I face these challenges, Fiona, of turning a book into a screenplay. I, I hope this is, is a, a mountain I will have to climb one day. <laughs> well, as I say, no deals have been done yet, but the, the option has been sold. That's as far as we've got. But Gail, tell me, what have you been watching or listening to or reading this week? I'm going to make a terrible confession, and I'm doing it because it's made me think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't watch a lot of TV. I've, mm-hmm. I've talked about that before, and I've also talked about the one show that I've really enjoyed involved zombies because it was very funny, and mm-hmm. I seem to find zombies generally quite funny. So my husband was watching The Walking Dead, which oh, is the most zombies. terrible show mm. all about zombies, and it's gross and ridiculous, but I got completely sucked in. Mm-hmm. But completely sucked in. But why? What was it? I don't. It must have been a strong it, it's narrative the story. Well, to well bring that's you actually in. what I'm going to come to is after watching a few episodes, I realized that actually what it is, it's a soap opera with zombies. Okay. So okay. these soap opera type stories, I'm pregnant. It could be his baby. I'm in love with this one. This one's having sex with that one. It's a soap opera story right. with zombies. Okay. Okay. And when I had that realization, I thought, I'm going to stop watching this now. Why? Why does the fact that I'm watching a soap opera with zombies make me want to stop? And it's made me think a lot about this whole issue of guilty pleasures. And I am very against the concept of guilty pleasures. I think we should feel no guilt about Mm. anything Mm. we consume Mm. or read or watch. And yet I'm stopping myself watching it because I've picked up that I'm watching a soapy and in my head that is not okay. And it's something I need to unpack and think about. Fiona, what have you been reading? Hopefully less guilt involved in yours. (laughs) Absolutely no guilt involved in this one because I've been reading your book, Little Secrets. (laughs) Well, I'm glad there's no guilt. (laughs) And I absolutely loved it. I would recommend it to anybody because it was such a great read. I absolutely whizzed through it, but I particularly liked the ending. And without giving any spoilers away, I was trying to unpick in my brain, why did I like the ending? And I think it's because it was so consistent with what the way you'd set the characters up and the way you'd set the situation up. It was so plausible and consistent. And also there was a kind of almost open-endedness to it where 
the reader could supply further details or at the very least the reader would still be thinking about it afterwards. And it's been days since I, I finished and I'm still thinking about those characters and what they might do and what their future might look like. So to me, that's a really successful and satisfying ending. And in fact, I think it's in many ways a masterclass in how to end a novel. So well done. I really loved it. Well, you've said two lovely things, a masterclass in how to end a novel, but also my favorite thing is that a reader is still thinking about it after reading. Definitely. Our guest today is media personality and writer Joanne Joseph. You know her from her books Drug Mule and most recently Children of the Sugarcane. Children of Sugarcane. Yes, that's right, Fiona. Okay. Children we'll... of the Sugarcane takes on a much darker kind of, it sounds <laughs> yes. a bit like a horror. Children, oh, wasn't children, children of the corn. Of the corn. Yes. The corn. That's and I think I'm that's thinking. why people get confused quite often. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit of a horror story, however, slightly different. Not quite one. children of the corn <laughs> <Yeah>. level. <laughs> um, Joanne, can you tell us how your writing week has been? What, what have you been doing in the literary world this week? Um, so first of all, thanks for having me. It's so lovely to see you again and be in this cozy studio with you. This week has been uh, not a week of creative writing by any means. It's been a week of constructing interviews, um, you know, mm-hmm. first for French Hook and then for the Kingsmead Book Fair mm-hmm. that's coming up this weekend. And, and so it's been a matter of close reading and connecting the books that are that, often that very I'm, challenging. It's very challenging, actually, Gail. Very, very uh, yes, challenging. Uh, I've done panels in the past. I think, Fiona, I have a memory of doing one with you where I had three books so unrelated to each other and yeah. finding connections between them. It, it really it takes a lot of thought. It does. It does. It helps to have to have studied literature so that you have an idea about how to go about it and that kind of thing. Um, you know, you, you learn techniques, and that's been very useful to me. But it sometimes is still hard to, to connect the dots and, and you've just got to be clever about how you do it or try to be clever about how you do it. And there's such a difference between being a panelist on a panel and your book is under discussion. Mm-hmm. That to me is the easy part. That That's Absolutely. fine. No preparation involved in that. Yeah. But to be the moderator of a panel and to have the responsibility of having, you know, three or four writers to talk to, to be familiar with their books, to uh, present the books in such a way that the audience then wants to rush out and buy them, which after all is the ultimate purpose behind <laughs> these literary festivals, yeah. that that is quite a thing. And it's a duty that I think we all take very seriously. Mm. We all put in a lot of preparation. I really hope so. Um, I mean, the, certainly the writers I engage who are on panels do that. They do the homework, you know, they do the reading. But I also talk to a lot of writers who are interviewed by journalists or media personalities who haven't read their books. Mm. Yes. And it's really unfair to them, you mm. know, for writers who've, who've taken the time to construct this novel, tried to do it with, with their, you know, their expertise, their talent, um, you know, have, have really lost a lot of sleep over what this novel is going to come out like or what a, a nonfiction book is going to come out like. Um, for, for someone to arrive at an interview and not be prepared is very unfair to them. So I'm glad there are a few of us who still <laughs> read the books and prep adequately. <laughs> so, and you mentioned before we started recording that you've also been working on an audiobook. 
Can you talk to us a bit about that process? So that's been quite exciting and it's been a little bit remote actually, Gail, because the audiobook for Children of Sugarcane is being recorded in Cape Town. But we had to go through the process. So Jonathan Ball is now starting to record its own audiobooks and they're, you know, Book by book, they have to find voice artists. They're still fairly new to it, so they're finding their feet. And there's some bases one has to cover, you know, when, when it's a new process. You've got to find the right voices. You've got to, you've got to really analyze what is required from a voice point of view before you start recording that text. And I mean, that sounds like such a simple, oversimplified thing to say. But when when you're grappling with a text like Children of Sugarcane, for example, you're dealing with accents. Mm. And you, you've got to decide what the approach is going to be. Are you going to do the Indian characters with a light Indian accent, a heavier Indian accent? You've got to be careful of, of caricaturing those characters, yes. um, even the British characters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and um, all of these these sort of uh, editorial decisions, I suppose, have got to be made. These creative decisions have got to be made before you embark on it. And then you've got to listen to the voices, the quality of the voices. And, and ultimately, you've got to find a voice that speaks to your heart, you know, that captures the, the soul of your characters, uh, someone who understands how to switch fluidly between them or to capture the drama or the pain and trauma of some of the most difficult passages in your novel. Um, and we found someone beautiful. Uh, she is an actress um, of Indian descent uh, from Zambia, if I understand it correctly. And she is, uh, her name is Rashina Ratnam. And so she records these um, these passages and then she sends us six to ten chapters at a time and we're now on the home stretch. So, you know, it's very intense work and, and I really take my hat off to the voiceover artists who have to do it. I'm fascinated by the level of your involvement. Do you think that is typical of how South African audiobooks are happening or do you think it's your particular expertise in the spoken word, in the recorded word, and, you know, you have a knowledge that not every writer has of how things come over in sound, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I well, you see, I think it depends on the publisher and it depends on the contract as well that the writer has. For some writers, if they've got, for example, an audible contract, I think the process is handled quite differently. Um, it's all handled overseas. Um, perhaps they might ask you for a bit of reflection on which writer you prefer, but I think ultimately they make those decisions. That's been and it's out experience. of your hands. That's been Has it? And I, th- I think that is the, the experience for the vast majority. Thank goodness Jonathan Ball has has allowed me to be part of this process. Um, so I've been working very closely with Jeremy Bahrain, who is running this department now. And, you know, he's an old hack. And by that, I don't mean he's old. He's seasoned. <laughs> <laughs> very seasoned, very calm gentleman. So, you know, I do the overthinking. I do. And, and he kind of just sorts it out. And he comes in and has one, one thing that's really important is that he's listened to tons of audiobooks over yes. the years. And, and so you develop a, a feel for for what they ought to sound like, what the conventions are, um, how you handle certain difficulties with the text. Do you include the author's note, for example, which is what we've been speaking about this week? And the reason we included the author's note, which is not always included, is because it serves a kind of curatorial Mm. purpose, uh, because I've used offensive Mm. language in the book since it's set during colonial Mm. times. So I've used the K word, Mm. I've used the C word. um, And and so it, it just gives a a reader a sense of the context in which those that language is being used. 
So, so Jonathan Ball's been wonderful about keeping me involved from the word go. Um, and I think many of their writers are going to go through the same process, regardless of mm. what their backgrounds are, because they have respect for how they treat the, the audiobook and they want the writer to be on board and to be happy with the finished product, which I very much appreciate. Um, and there's a lovely ability to go back and forth between us and them mm. and say, well, actually, I would prefer it to uh, or I prefer to do it this way, or I would prefer this treatment. I would. Uh, these are the way. This is the way I want the names pronounced. Um, you know that that sort of yeah. thing. And fortunately, Rasheen has been very good about staying in contact with me, and uh, and saying, please help me out with these pronunciations or these strange words that yes. we we don't use in everyday language in South Africa. Yes, I have heard audio books where there's one voice artist, one narrator who kind of changes their voice for different characters. And I've heard ones that have been done almost like a radio play yes. where different mm. characters are voiced by different artists. Right. I think Lincoln and, and the Bardo was one of those, right? Yes, yes. yes. Um, and I, I guess that the second way of doing it is much more expensive <laughs> because you've got all those <laughs> sure. voice artists to pay. But that, that would also be an interesting approach. I think so. But I think it also... Um, with with the with audiobook recording you actually have to be fairly disciplined because it can become a a radio production in mm. the sense that you know it it could spill over into radio drama yes mm. and if that's the approach you want to take absolutely mm. uh, but there are audiobook conventions and i mean i know of someone who was listening to lincoln and the bardo and couldn't finish it because there were too many voices right and and from an auditory point of view i mean if you've got visual cues it's quite easy to switch between yes. them but without the visual cues if they're just auditory cues if you're driving or gardening or cooking it's quite difficult to concentrate on who is talking at any given time. So you you have to make those sorts of choices before you start yeah. recording. Okay. Well, it is clear that your background is in media. Um, <laughs> so perhaps you could tell us a bit about your early career, uh, what your training and education was, and how you found yourself where you are today. I don't know how I found myself <laughs> where I am today, quite honestly, Fiona. I sort of fell into things and uh, and I was an opportunist and I, I took the chances that were thrown at me. So I, I came to Johannesburg from Durban as an 18-year-old uh, in in the hope of studying drama and literature and sort of teaching at some point. And that was not the way it happened. My parents had managed to save enough for me to go to university for a year and after that, I mean, it, it was going to be quite difficult for them to continue paying for me. And so I had to find a job. And thankfully, it was so well-timed. YFM was starting at that time, and they were looking mm -hmm. for young people to be on radio. There's, there's no other way I would have ended up on radio, you know, because it was it was for older, more seasoned journalists at that time. And I auditioned for this. I remember I didn't have the money to walk to the to to take a taxi to the audition. I had to walk from Witz to Lorenzville, where the audition took place. And fortunately, wow. I passed it. And I became the morning reader on YFM and then went on from there to Classic FM, Business Day and that kind of thing. Um, and then um, SABC was auditioning for um, a 24-hour news channel, SABC Africa. And my former news editor from Classic FM, uh, Charles Leonard, um, is, is said to me, you know, give it a go. Just see, see what's possible. And I passed that audition, thankfully. And that was how I got into, into television. But interestingly, my studies have had nothing or very little to do with that. I do, I have to say, 
the skill set, the, the wider sort of skill set has been very useful to me in my journalism work. But I studied drama and film and English. Those were my majors. And then I went on to study literature afterwards, and I'm still studying literature at the moment. Um, so none of the courses I'd, I've done, except a, a, a journalism writing course, a writing for broadcasting course, have actually pertained directly to journalism. They're most, it's mostly the discipline I've learned mm. on the fly in the newsrooms. Um, which are wonderful learning spaces. And um, the rest has been sort of a wider education around in, in cognitive fields, you know, of literature and, and drama and so forth. That, that leads me to, you know, you, you've fallen in church, you've studied different things, you've taken the chances that have been offered to you, which I think is the definition of having good luck is that you see the chance <laughs> and you take it not yes, that it really it is. is good luck um but what would you advise someone wanting to get into the same field a young person listening who wants to become a journalist who wants to be a radio television journalist what should they be studying you know it's a very difficult question to answer because there are a lot of us who don't have those journalistic qualifications i mean they really do help but you also often find that they're not adequate once a person with a qualification comes to work in a newsroom. They they don't understand the buzz of the newsroom. They don't understand how the day-to-day -day running of a newsroom, or the little minutiae of getting a show on air or writing a script actually works, uh, which says to me that in some ways our, our journalism mm. teaching has been left behind and and we need to, to start making it a little bit more practical and marrying it with the theoretical and perhaps the ideological as well. So, um, I, I mean, there, there are many people who go off to study journalism, but I would say if you've got a general humanities degree, mm -hmm. that, that has been the most useful to me. The skills that I use the most are close reading, um, because it applies to a number of different types of texts that I have to consume for work. Um, you know, the ability to develop argumentation critical thinking. I think if, if those skills are being developed, then you've already got a pretty good chance at, at being operational in a newsroom. Um, I, I don't know that many people who study journalism will end up in newsrooms, mm. sadly. And that's because the industry is shrinking. Mm. Budgets are shrinking. Media houses, the size of them is shrinking, you know. And so there doesn't seem to be the same demand anymore. That's not to say, I mean, it's a big world and South Africa is now part of a global village. Um, you could be a journalist anywhere in the world. But, but I'm starting to see that a range of skill sets is what is going to be required. If you can be a good writer, um, you, you can probably slip into journalism. If you can be, uh, if, if you're quite creative visually, you can probably slip into multimedia journalism and so forth. And so I would say study what interests you and supplement the journalism skills. Someone's going to kill me for saying that, mm -hmm. but, um, but I, I think in newsrooms, the people for me, in my opinion, um, who have performed the best are people who've had a range of skills. And I'm just going to ask one more. Well, almost, it's almost coming before I let Fiona get into books and deeper into things. Um, I think also the lack of having a beautiful speaking voice, because I'm sitting here listening to you and thinking <laughs> I could listen to her talk all day. And you know, that, that is a difficult, that's not something if you, if you don't have a good speaking voice, you don't have a good speaking voice. You can probably, can you fine tune it? Have you, you worked on your voice? Yes, I have. I have. I've spent, and, and, and studying drama helped a lot because it started at school. Um, so, so you deal with all sorts of psychological things when you're studying voice. Um, one of them, 
So, for example, let me give you an example. Coming from the Indian South African community, there are a lot of Indian women with psychophysical blocks. So, for example, when we're nervous, our voice, the pitch of our voices will rise. Sometimes we'll do it in the presence of older people. Um, because there's a whole cultural mindset associated with that. Um, sometimes we will not be able to project confidence again because there's a whole gendered thing associated with that. So those are the habits you have to break. Um, you've got to become mm. conscious of them, first of all, and you've got to think about how your voice resides in your body. And then you've got to think about what you want to do with your voice. Um, and, and that was quite important to me, learning as a, as a woman, a young woman, starting in news. I was the youngest person in the newsroom. They always had to dress me up in particular ways and put particular types of makeup on me and do my hair in a particular way because I, I was the youngest. And there was a question around credibility mm. back when I... I started doing news, you know, I was, I was 21 when I, mm. when I started TV news. And so as a result, you've got to, you've got to position yourself the way you want yourself to be seen. And if you sound like a mouse on air, you will not be seen to be authoritative. You will not be seen to be a, a force to be reckoned with. It will affect the way people interview. Mm. Um, or people appear in interviews with you. It will affect how you interact with interviewees and other journalists. And so it takes a long time to build that up. Part of it is psychological work. It's confidence. Part of it is saying, I don't care what people think of me. I'm going to say what I need to say, especially where talk radio is concerned. And part of it is just the technical work on learning to root the voice, um, rooting out bad habits, uh, breaking, you know, sort of bad, bad breathing habits. Or um, for me, a big thing has been dealing with my asthma because I'm asthmatic, but live a very functional life. But I have to try to make sure in a broadcast that that's not apparent to people. Sometimes it is, <laughs> but, but those are the, the little quirks that you have to work with, you know, and, and overcome. What an interesting rabbit hole we just went down. I'm not ready to climb out of the rabbit hole yet. <laughs> this is supposed to be a podcast about books and writing. <laughs> One last question. Uh, going back to what you said about um, kids who are coming out of journalism school not knowing how to negotiate a newsroom and the buzz of it and the deadlines and the sort of day to minute to minute of a newsroom. Is there any substitute then just being there, perhaps doing an internship or being a runner or just physically being in a newsroom. Is that the only way to pick that up? I mean, once you've got the theoretical knowledge, it, it gives you a little bit more confidence to operate in a newsroom. You, you understand notions of ethics, for example, or you start to understand the news agenda of a particular organization. Those, those things are in place. But I think until you're in the news organization, whether you start off as an intern or whether you're employed there as, as a young person, there is absolutely no substitute for it. Newsrooms are brutal. Mm-hmm. Um, for, for all sorts of reasons. And, and I would say perhaps it's true of many professions. I mean, my, my back story, I'm a lawyer mm-hmm. and I only started learning how to be a lawyer after two degrees right. when I did my articles. That's when you actually start yes. learning how to do it. Yeah. Maybe we've got yeah. practical law school and maybe at practical law school I started learning a bit. But it's once you're in the, once you're at the coal face yeah. that you learn what it really is about. And unfortunately, I think for a lot of kids, that's when you realize you don't like it. Mm. Um, that's true. Two degrees down the, down the road and suddenly you realize actually, wait. 
this is not for yeah. me. I think medicine can be like that. Yeah. <laughs> People have an idea of what it is to be a doctor, and then when they're actually in that sphere, and they there's blood and spit and vomit. <laughs> yeah, they that was very descriptive. Uh, thank you for that, Gail. Um, <laughs> We hope our listeners are not eating breakfast while listening to this podcast. But it's it's true. I mean, when I say newsrooms are brutal, they're really difficult spaces for young people to adapt. Um, you know, they are they're very high pressure, particularly broadcast newsrooms, and and there's a lot of choice language that flies during during uh, live broadcasts. So you've things go wrong. Things go wrong all the time. Things go wrong every day. There's, there's never a show where things go perfectly. And there's never a show that's finished when it goes on air. And so you are constantly writing during that show. As a presenter, you are reworking interviews. There's breaking news. You're multitasking and, and everyone else is multitasking. The technical people are multitasking. The people on the desk and editorial are multitasking. Um, and, and when the show is live, it's an organic beast that just almost eats you alive if you can't stay on top of it. And so uh, it's very exciting. I mean, yes. you, you really get a buzz out of it and you become addicted to it. Um, and, and that's perfectly understandable because it is incredible when it comes together, when everyone pulls together and the final product is, is decent on air. You, you're all very proud of that. Having said that, when it goes wrong, it's not pleasant. And I think... There are people who are built for broadcast newsrooms because you do become slightly calloused in that environment and you, um, you become desensitized too. Um, but, but they're also really exciting places to be in. And, and when it works and when you, when you are producing work of a high standard, it's wonderful. And yeah, which- I'm going to be strict with you. We have to get back to the book. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I will reluctantly return to writing now. Um, Joanne, how did you fall into writing? Is it something you've always done and always been interested in? Your first book is Drug Muled, the story of Vanessa Huerson. Yes. How did you become involved in that? What was it about the story that attracted you? How did that all come about? So I, I wasn't always interested in, in writing because I didn't think I was a very good writer. Um, and at school, I beg to differ, but yes, <laughs> I, I mean, at school, I remember, I remember getting into trouble when I was in primary school for not being able to finish essays on time. Mm-hmm. And my mom, who was a teacher, sat me down and she would give me topics in the holidays and she would make me write and she would time me. And my mom was very influential in my learning how to read and write um, and how to construct as well. Because, you know, you, you'd get these lovely speeches that you had to mm. do, right, show and tell or whatever the case was. And I'd always choose a very complicated topic, but I wouldn't know how to structure it properly. And the afternoon or the evening before, she'd say, come and do your speech for me. And it would be a mess. And she would help me to restructure it. And you'd listen. Teenagers don't. But I did notice that my marks were better when I listened, <laughs> which was a pretty good motivation. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was. Um, you know, I, I didn't think of myself as a particularly good writer, but I loved to read. And I now realise that reading was a huge education for me at that time. Um, and then I, I suppose I slowly slipped into it because I became an, an academic writer in the sense that I had to pass at university, write lots of essays, all that kind of thing. I was pretty good at that, I discovered. Um, and then when I started working in news, I had to learn a whole new discipline of writing for the ear and writing not for the 
for the eye that sees print, but for the eye that watches. Right. And, and that's a very specific kind of discipline as well. So you, in, in radio, of course, you're writing for the ear. It's got to be really pared down, clean writing, um, very hard when you're moving from an academic environment into writing radio mm. copy, uh, news copy. It's, it, I really struggled with that. And as if that wasn't bad enough, when I got to TV, they said, no, this habit of writing for radio is very bad. Lose it. We start with the pictures. And the pictures tell the story. So if you haven't looked at the pictures yet, you do not script. Um, you make sure that the pictures are actually leading your your script and leading the direction in which your script develops. So that was that was another acquired skill. Mm. And then one day, um, I mean that that led to documentary writing and so on. But but one day, um, it was actually around the time Nolu Babalo Nobande was arrested with uh, with heroin in her dreadlocks. Yes, I and, and she that. was mm. she was that was in Thailand. She was being taken off to to prison, and of course it's a, it's a very remote kind of story and idea and, and difficult to put one's finger on. And we there was a suggestion in the team that we ought to get Vanessa Huerson in because she'd had a similar experience and she'd been in the same women's jail, La Yao, in Thailand. And, um, you know, she was back. And, and we could talk to her about this and get a sense of what Nola Babala was going through. And so that that proved to be a very important interview because it was meant to have been a sort of four-minute interview, um, and it turned out to be an eight-minute interview and then a 20-minute interview. And it occurred to me as as she was talking that the elements were there for a longer format text of some kind. I wasn't convinced that I could write that I could write creatively, in other words, write creative nonfiction. I knew that I could write nonfiction in the sense that I could do news or current affairs scripting and documentary scripting and so on. But I didn't know that I could write a decent nonfiction creative text. Um, and I thought, let me, let me, let me try my hand at it and see if it's possible. The, 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 the bones of the story are all there. The mm. skeleton is there. It's a matter of filling that in. So let me start trying to do this. And so I did it. And we were on a deadline, actually, to get the book out because there was a gentleman who was in the men's prison next door who had already started writing his book. Oh. And so the idea was also a South African. Yes, also South African. Interesting. So, so it um, his his name is Shani Krebs, if I remember correctly, and and so he he was writing. I believe he was quite far with the book, but it was still quite a tome and required a lot of editing, and and so it was proposed to me that I write this, but that I do it in three months so that we could get the book out before Good Lord. his. Wow, and so it was very intense, but it in a way it it really. It really fitted quite nicely into the way I like to write, which is completely erratically. So for three months, my husband took over our lives entirely. He took over the running of the household. He took over looking after my child most of the time, our child. Um, and he, he also, um, you know, he, he also had a job during the day, but, but he, fortunately he was working a, a 4 a.m. shift in, in, uh, TV. So, you know, it, it was possible to fit everything in, but I locked myself away for three months and I wrote nonstop. I wrote day and night. Um, I would finish a chapter in the early hours of the morning. It would go to the editor at about five o'clock that morning. And then I'd start and I'd, I'd do an interview the morning of the next day with, uh, with Vanessa. I'd go to work in the afternoon. And then I'd come home, I'd sleep for a couple of hours and I'd start writing at midnight again. Goodness. And that was my, my 
plan, my writing plan. It doesn't sound like a great plan, but it worked. Starts we got a book out of it. Exhausting. At the end. It was, but it was energizing as well. Yes. You know, when I'm working on a project that I'm excited about, I can, I can work like that for quite a long time. Um, I mean, the audiobook, I worked on the audiobook, f- uh, till, till four o'clock this morning. Um, and, and it's fine. I, I'm quite happy to go back and continue working on it because the project is exciting to me. And, and so that, that was how that book came about. And that was how it ended up on the shelf so quickly. Um, and it was also, I think for Vanessa, who had suffered so much in prison, it was really important for her to have a tangible, um, a tangible documentation of that somehow. Mm. And it made a big difference to her when she went out to speak about her ordeal. She could actually give people something that, that would stay with them. And, and, and that was how she got her story out into the public domain. And I think it's been quite important to reintegrating her. Um, reintegrating herself into society and also finding a new role, you know, mm. as, as someone who, um, who gives hope to other people by talking about her experiences. And then from that writing project to uh, even more, so you've gone from kind of really nonfiction to somebody's story to Going further and further into fiction as you, so, so I don't even know really how to, where to put children of sugar cane and I'm not going to put the in my head every time. Um, <laughs> <coughs> but how would you, just, how would we, how do we describe it? Uh, a fictionalized history. Yes, uh, I suppose it falls into fiction. historical fiction. Historical fiction. Historical yeah. fiction is yeah. the word, not fictionalized <laughs> history, but, but, but based Deeply in real, in, in true stories. Yes. So how did you take that step? And then how did, what made you want to go further into fiction? So it was very incremental for me. When, when my daughter was born 16 years ago, I realized that we don't have much information about our matrilineal history. That, you know, we've grown up with my dad's side of the family. The Joseph side of the family is very present and has been throughout my life. And my daughter interacts with, with uh, that side of the family a lot. She's very close to my mom, but I realized we did not have anything concrete from my mom's side to speak of. And when I asked my mom about it, I mean, she was able to tell me about her parents. Unfortunately, they died young. She was a teenager when she lost them. And, and so uh, she, the fact that she was orphaned early means a lot of that history was mm. lost as well. Um, but furthermore, I mean, she had a grandmother who was an indentured laborer and she knew almost nothing about this great, mm. this grandmother when I asked her about her. She said to me, I, I know two things. I know that her, f- her first name was Arda Lachmi and I know that she was an indentured laborer. And that's about all I can tell you. She died before I was born. And I started to think about the story of an indentured laborer. You know, we don't talk about the story much in the Indian community. And I don't know what one can attribute that to. Perhaps there's a sense of shame. Perhaps there's trauma. You know, perhaps there's a sense of intergenerational trauma that, that, that the previous generations don't want to be passed on to us. Or perhaps there's a sense that, well, this community is socially upwardly mobile, and why do we have to talk about this painful past? Why can't we just move on? I think it's a combination of those things and perhaps other factors that I haven't thought of. But I certainly wanted to go back to the past. Mm. I'm someone who's always haunted by the past. Things from the past 
stay with me and they pull me back all the time because I have a deep interest in, in the past. And, and so I wanted to know more. So I went to the archives and eventually after searching, I found Avalachmi there. There she was arriving on the Laurel Madras in 1884 with a brother in tow who was a year younger. She was about 21. There were two sisters, one who was 10 and one was 15, and they were all set to work on the Natal government railways, which was the second largest employer at the time. And then she disappeared from the archive, and I realized I could not actually construct a story from her life. Um, but But the reading I had done around it came came into into the picture so importantly at that time because I realized the stories I was reading of the other indentured laborers, which have been beautifully documented by historians in the country and are not widely accessed, but really should be because they've done a wonderful job doing it. Those stories just as important and those stories are equally her story mm. um, or her story, as we tend to say. Mm-hmm. And, and I... I was fascinated by those stories. I'm very drawn to the stories of women who have suffered, women who have done brave and stoic things and endured hardship and triumphed. And and really, she was one of those people. Um, I think she was brave. 30 years later, I found a picture of her. 30 years later, she's an elderly woman now. Uh, you know, they didn't have a particularly long lifespan there. So she was probably getting to the end of her life. But there she is. She's a She's a plump sort of matriarch sitting there, and she's, I think, a little bit proud of what she's achieved because by that time she's married, she's served out her indenture, she's had children, she's educated all of her children, mm. educated them really well. And, um, you know, she's she's uh, converted to Christianity. She's also run a Methodist mission from her home for 30 years, interestingly. and But most importantly, she's she's given her children this gift of education mm. that has pulled them out of the poverty that indenture could have kept them in. Mm. And so in my mind, she's this brave, really courageous woman who took a chance, did it without the help of her parents, came to a continent that was foreign, grew to love it, adopted it as her own, broke the rules by marrying a British man and and did what she wanted, essentially. She was a bit of a, a mm. renegade, you know. Mm. And I loved that about her. And so I wanted to tell the stories of women like her. And the stories are all there. That's the amazing thing. I didn't have to work really hard to excavate the stories. You've got historians like Ashwin Desai, Gulam Vyad. I mean, one of the books I used, Inside Indian Indenture, is actually a receptacle of all of those stories. Um, there's a book that's come out recently called Indian Africans that again tells those stories and offers new pictorial evidence. So the historians are working all the time, and I think it's become part of our duty as writers to take that information and to democratize it by creating fiction, commercial mm-hmm. fiction, nonfiction that's more accessible, graphic novels, if you like, you know, all the things that make it available to us and to our children. And so for me, that, that was really useful. I didn't have to, to dig hard for the stories, but the stories jump off the page at you. Um, you know, there's, there's some stories that are dying to be told. And, and those stories really formed the core of the novel. There are stories of many people in that book who lived that way, lived through the hardship, mm. struggled and, and, and overcame it and, and, and died eventually or died as a result of the, the nature of the system, which was mm. a very cruel one that was akin to slavery. Mm. And and there was something quite special about having the privilege of being able to memorialize the people and their stories, even if we, we don't know them by the exact names. Um, it's special to me that I've been able to to remember them, 
to tell their history from the bottom up and, and to also wrench, wrench that hidden history from under this, this thick carpet of history that, that sometimes hides particular stories for all sorts of reasons and, and, and bring, and to bring them to the fore. Um, and to say, hello, remember, when we remember and we, when we think about South African history, please think about these people too. They were part of it. They were part of forming this nation. Um, they, they have been part of contributing to our society and, and they deserve to move from being invisibilized to being remembered. Does it take a psychological toll on you to have told these two stories? Vanessa Hurson's story is very traumatic. The story of Shanti and Raksha, very traumatic as well. And you inhabit those characters so closely. You really get into their psyche um, in a very intimate way. Was it traumatic for you? Did it take any kind of psychological toll? That's such a good question, Fiona, and I think it's because I've come out of newsrooms that it didn't exact the toll it could have. Right. Um, I'm I'm very attracted to those stories of struggle. Um, they they really, without romanticizing them, they they really draw me because there's something important about them. And and I've I, I've spoken about this in in a, at a few book events. The important the importance of bearing witness. There has to be someone in society who writes this kind of material. And and if you have the wherewithal and if you have the the strength to be able to excavate these stories and tell them, do it. You know, there there are some people who who are made differently. Writers are made differently. And and not everyone needs to be telling these stories. But but there are people and, and a lot of the journalists I work with are those people. They they go into the darkest corners mm. of the country and and they tell the most difficult, most heart-wrenching stories that that could possibly exist in the world. Um, and of course, they have to take care of their hearts. It's, it's not always easy to do that. You've got to have an outlet. Um, you've got to have people you talk to. You've got to cry. I think that's really important when you're telling these stories. I mean, with Vanessa, it was, it was, it was really, visceral because she's a living, breathing human being right now who went through mm. this trauma. She lost her daughter at the age of three when the child had to leave the prison, you mm. know. The child left the prison on her birthday. That was the most oh, difficult chapter for me to write. That's you know? difficult to read, my goodness. Um, and, and it was difficult to write, Fiona, because as a mother, it broke mm. me. Mm. When I think about that scene right yeah. now, it still makes me extremely sad to think about that little it. girl running back for another kiss and another yeah. kiss and another. Oh my goodness! Yeah, so and it's, it's every mother's worst nightmare. It is. It absolutely it's, is. It 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 talks to it talks to the experience of millions of mothers mm. around the world who've lost mm. their children in one way or another or can't see them anymore for some reason. Um, so so it was really heart wrenching. When I was writing the his, the historical fiction novel, it was a little different because there's a bit of distance. But somehow, when you are writing those scenes where people are being flogged in the sugarcane fields or women are being raped mm. or people are being humiliated, you are wrenched back to that mm. time. There isn't a way to escape it. You are living in the past. You're living in two realities while you write. And and the, the truth is I, I, I wrote through tears in many of those scenes. There, there's a scene where I have to kill the character that I really loved, you know, mm. Mm. Um, and, and grew very attached to. 
And, and for me, you know, killing, killing that character off was really hard, but it had happened to a real person. And it was the nature of the system that. Were, were you that tempted? It, were you tempted to, to allow the character yes, to live? Yes, I did actually want, <laughs> want the character to live because, it, I mean, it was a special person, yes. you know. But I had to remind myself that the system took the innocent ones quite often. And, and I had to be true to that story. And so when, when I killed that character off, I cried my heart out. Um, but not just because I'd killed this character that I'd grown so familiar with and that I'd grown to love so much. It was that it had happened to a real person yes. at some point in history. And it very possibly, many of the stories I recorded in the book had probably in some form or the other occurred in a form mm. in my great grandmother's life. Mm. I don't know what her level of suffering was, but I know that people who were on the Natal government railways were even subjected to auctions, much, much in the tradition of slavery where mm. families were separated and so on. I know, for example, that her brother, after one year, left as an invalid, um, which, which means she probably never saw him again. He was injured, very likely injured on the Natal government railways and, and had to leave. And the story behind the injury, what was the injury? Why? I mean, yes, that- I, and, and we'll never know. It's yes. been swallowed up. By history, you know, but, but, but those sorts of things do hurt. They hurt when you write and, and they must hurt. It's a good thing that they do. There's a kind of exorcism for you as a writer that takes place when you can go back into your past and you can explore the lives of these people as, as best you can, what the archive will reveal, what your personal stories or oral tradition will reveal. You know, there's, there's something quite powerful about that. And, and you do at the end feel a kind of catharsis from having put it down mm. on paper and other people who read the book and then layer it and re-encode it with their own family experiences mm. and histories then also seem to experience some kind of catharsis which is which is i think important for a pained traumatized society like ours um that needs to work through the effects of colonization and other atrocities like apartheid that we've experienced which leads to my next question which if we follow the tra- trajectory of your writing and the, the feeling of duty as a writer that you've talked about, the importance of bearing witness, but you're going from nonfiction towards fiction, do you feel you do you feel you've met your duty and are you going to allow yourself to go even further into fiction and maybe a fiction less burdened by duty, or do you feel you haven't quite Meet your duty. You you still have a duty to tell stories that are rooted in history. Gail, that's a good question because I don't know the answer to it. And I think I'm going to discover it as I go along and get older. When I was 20 years old, I if anyone told me I was going to write a historical fiction novel um, that, that would be widely distributed in the country and, and, and have an international launch, I, I wouldn't have believed them because I didn't think I had it in me. And I don't know what else I have in me. Maybe this is my last novel. Maybe this is my last historical fiction novel. Maybe I'm going to go off and focus on my academia for now. One thing I've tried to do with my life is, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a crazy planner. But when it has come to my career, I've tried to be a little bit more open to whatever experience presents itself. And I think when, it is your time to tell a story. The story comes to you in some way or another. And Can, has the next story come to you? Are you writing? There, there is something scratching at me, but I've not, 
I'm, I'm suppressing it right now because I'm trying to get through a, a literature PhD, which is painful and difficult. <laughs> if there's anything to make you feel quite stupid, it is to, you know, go back to, to academia and try and do it after writing a historical fiction novel. It's difficult. I'm struggling. Um, and, and I don't have the same, Acu- the acumen, you know, I don't have the same academic acumen that, that a lot of other people do. You've got people like Helen Moffat who can slip from, uh, you know, writing. One day she'll be writing poetry and the next day she'll write a novel and the next day she'll write an academic article. I don't think I'm talented in that way, but I'm trying to develop my, my skills as a better academic. So that's where my area of focus is now. If another story comes along, perhaps in the future, I'll think about it. I'm going um, to tell you, as someone who's written many books, when yeah. that idea starts scratching, yeah, it's scratching. It's going to scratch until you write it. <laughs> that 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 is my my wisdom for you today. <laughs> Thank you, <laughs> uh, Joanne. When I read Children of Sugarcane, I was amazed that it was being written by somebody who had not written a novel before, because it's so mm-hmm. intricately constructed. And I'm interested in why you chose the way you did choose to construct it. It's not chronological. It's not told from only one point of view. Um, there's a, a bit of country hopping and time hopping and also head hopping in different characters. And it's so skillfully done that, that you know, first-time writers usually don't mm-hmm. manage to get that right, first-time novel writers, I should say. But you get it right in spades. So how did you choose to construct it? And why did that feel like the best way of telling those characters' stories? So, um, I mean, thank you. Thank you for saying that, Fiona. One is never 100% sure that you have got it right. Um, I still open the novel and I see flaws in it especially while I'm doing these corrections for the audiobook. It's like I'm I'm reliving the trauma of, of drafting and redrafting. Exactly. That <laughs> <laughs> never leaves you, you know. But um but but firstly the the published version is the twenty second draft of the novel. And wow. and I was writing for nine years and that should give you a sense of what a struggle it was. I did not know how to write historical fiction. I didn't know how to design characters um, I, I wasn't really good at any of the elements that make up a good historical fiction novel at the beginning. I couldn't get into a writing program either. I applied for a creative writing master's degree and unfortunately was not accepted. Huh, don't they feel like fools now? <laughs> yes, I bet they <laughs> sure. I wonder. Um, but, but you know, it was uh, interestingly, I was not accepted after my first novel, which was a bestseller, well, after my first book, Drug Mills, which was a bestseller. So clearly they weren't convinced that I could write. But I was also not convinced at that point that I could write, um, write, write fiction anyway. And the first few drafts are cumbersome and naive. Right. When I go back to them, they're examples of really poor writing, actually. Um, but there's a kind of parallel growth that goes on. Um, over nine years, I'm reckoning with all sorts of things emotionally, being a mom, being a wife, my career, being a daughter, being a sister. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these things start to inform the novel over a period of nine years. Um, the characters start to develop in my head. Um, so they, they start to take on a more physical form in my head and they develop voices and they have particular accents and so on in which they speak. And, and in my head, they start interacting with each other. 
and they sort of over a period after a long period start telling you what they want right um i want to fall in love i want to meet someone i want you know i i want to have this experience and and so once they're fully formed people in your head or they're becoming fully formed people it it becomes easier for you to write because they almost start to transcribe the novel to you but at the beginning in answer to your question about structure it was a very linear novel and the problem was it came off despite all the content about the horror of the plantations it came off as being a very light novel and then i realized again from reading which is always an exercise in writing i think because you're learning all the time while you read i was looking at what other fiction writers were doing and how they were building depth into their structure and into their content and part of the way they were doing that was with flashbacks and i thought ah okay maybe i need to rebuild the architecture of this novel because as a linear story with shanti and the sugarcane fields it somehow just comes off as a sort of happy story in mm-hmm. some ways that mm-hmm. that it i don't want it to be yes there are aspects of 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 hope and happiness and and survival and all sorts of wonderful emotions but but it's not meant to be a happy story and that's how it reads right now and then i gave shanti the opportunity to reflect on her own life as a mother because i was thinking about about my life mm. as a mother and and how we damage our children all the time right and indeed <laughs> we wouldn't like to admit it but there we are we're trying our best but we're not always succeeding and 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 why not put my character through that meat grinder and see how she deals with the daughter that she has to tell this horrific story to mm. because this is not what was done in my family yes right um and and so all of a sudden i ended up with a frame tale of an older shanti and her daughter at the beginning and at the end and of a section in the middle that moves through a period of time um so that she's at different stages of her indenture and i realized that actually that actually gave a bit more depth to the novel and it built the novel up in a way that you sense the passing of time as one should in an indenture novel so there's there's this hardship that exists over a period of time and if the form is not giving you that feeling that that a lot of time has passed that this character has suffered a lot that she's grown older that she's had incredible experiences that have molded her that she's a different person to the 14-year-old who arrived by the time she's 19 then you're not feeling the passing of of time in the novel the way you should you're not feeling the development the way you should and and when i changed the structure i felt that okay now by the end of it by the time she's 19 i'm dealing with an older shanti and she's a different person I'm feeling quite inspired listening to your writing process. I want to ask a writing side question. Um I'm interested in when you published this book, you were already a public figure. You know, you're a recognizable figure, people know who you are. And then you've written this extremely well-received book and you've been recognized by a different type of person and in a different way how different has it been um do you do, do you feel like it's all part of one brand this is Joanne Jones of the public figure or has it opened a whole new world of a different way of being a public figure i think it surprised people who knew me as a sort of one dimensional character but but i have changed over the years so i started off as a, a a news presenter people knew me that way um i started moving into longer format interviews and people started to see a different side of me um and i oh she's tough she holds politicians to account or or you know business people or whoever it is you know and then i moved into talk radio that required me to really 
put myself on the line and mm. put myself out there in a very mm. different way. And so I think that was a new discovery. And then the book brought a different dimension. So I think people have been learning there are more sides to me than they initially knew. And I'm learning the same thing in the process because I didn't always know these things about myself. But doing this book has allowed me to relax into a part of me that that, that has predominated and, 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 and been a huge part of my life since I was really young. Mm. My mother taught me to read when I was four. I started reading when I was four. And, and books have been a part of my life for such a long time. And I've loved reading for a long time. And I've loved literature for a long time. And, and sometimes news can be limiting. Current affairs can be limiting because you don't get to explore sides of yourself that, that you really enjoy. Mm. And so the book has allowed me to do that. It's allowed me to be a little more myself. It's allowed me to talk about writing and reading, uh, which which I love. I really love more than anything else. I love it more than news. And and I do love news, but but I don't love it in the same way I love writing and literature. And And it's allowed me to bring what I studied for so many years to the fore. Because I had a bit of a feeling that it was being wasted for, for a couple of decades, you know, or not fully realized mm. in the work that I was doing. So it's helped me to become a more rounded person, I think. How people feel about it, I hope that they realize that people are multifaceted mm. and that they have so many talents that perhaps they haven't thought about. And to just give everything they desire to do a chance at the right time in their lives um, because I think that, that everyone should have the opportunity to be able to do that. That is so lovely. You can't see me, but I've got a big smile on my face. <laughs> I love that. That is so lovely. Um, Joanne, one last question about the book. Colonialism is a very contested space. And in the book, you construct not a, a forgiveness narrative, but a, a kind of redemption narrative with the character of Raksha and her semi-defected British soldier lover and the way that works out in the end. Have you been aware of criticism, perhaps from uh, more radical elements in your readership, who just didn't want that story to be told? They didn't want there to be any kind of redemptive arc for the, the British side of things at all. That's such a good question, Fiona. Yes, I have. Um, it, it's been that kind of criticism has been very limited. But I, I remember reading a review where someone said, "What is this white savior thing that she's doing?" Oh, I didn't see it as white um, savior at all. Yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 someone did perceive it that way. Mm-hmm. What she didn't know was that I was trying to use the story as well to puzzle through my grandmother's relate, my great grandmother's mm-hmm. relationship with her uh, my, with my great grandfather. I don't know what their marriage was like. I don't know whether it was loving. I don't know whether it was abusive. All I know is that it happened. Mm-hmm. And I did want to put at least one of the characters through that trial because it happened. There were mm-hmm. mixed couples during that time. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know how they navigated it. But I suppose, Fiona, we also, when we're writing, as one historian says, when we're writing the past, we're also writing the present, right? And I think there are families in South Africa that are still navigating this today where, you know, your black child, and I use black as an umbrella term here, your black child brings a white person home or your, your, your white child brings a black person home. And what happens when you have to integrate that person into your family because your child has fallen in love with the person? These are dilemmas that persist till today. Mm. 
And for me, this was not going to be a novel about vengeance. There is an element of vengeance. Shanti is highly vengeful, and I've given her that space to be vengeful. I was rereading those passages last night, and I'm delighted that I gave her the right to do that and the space to do that, because there needs to be some sort of outpouring of the pain. Mm. There needs to be a calling out of the atrocities and the people who have been implicated in them. There can't just be a blanket forgiveness and the Mm. rainbow nation. Mm. You know, those things are fallacies. So we do need to work through that. But I think at the same time, how we remember is important. There are academics who use the term remembering forward, meaning you remember the past, you digest what has happened, you deconstruct what happened to your ancestors and what may even have traveled through your bones into today, the trauma, the pain, Mm. The sadness that you can't quite put your finger on, you know, but, but is there all the time. We, we, we have a right to go through that process where we exorcise those demons. But at the same time, our society requires reconciliation of some kind. We cannot go forward as a hateful society. Mm. We cannot go forward as a fractious society. In a small way, I hope that liter- literature can be used to develop this notion of a shared history. So we acknowledge what has happened. We acknowledge the atrocities. We call out the people who've committed them and benefited from them. But at the same time, we work towards using literature as a, as a lever to understand each other's histories, understand how we got here, and understand how we go forward building this country together using what we know about each other. And if we do not know each other, if we remain strangers to each other, as I think we have in mm. some ways post-democracy, mm. therein lies the barrier to complete integration as a South African society. We have not brought each other into our homes. Mm -hmm. Let's start with bringing the literature into our homes and then bringing each other into our homes. And I think I think literature just serves a really important use in that way that we've not fully explored yet, Fiona. And speaking of literature, what narratives have you been consuming lately that have resonated with you in any way? Most recently, well, I read Johnny Steinberg's book, which I thought was a very illuminating one and, and was fortunate enough to be able to interview him in, in Franchuk. And the, the nuance that he's brought to a story that we think we've, we've always known mm-hmm. is astonishing. And it just goes to show that sometimes it just takes a writer who has respect for the subjects, sensitivity towards a controversial subject, to be able to reconstruct and help us understand human beings who were caught up in history, who were lionized, but actually were exactly like us, maybe just a, a bit more courageous, you know, and, and who made choices that were not always, uh, that don't always sit well with us, you know. I think it's a novel that, uh, or it's a, a book rather that, that specializes in human understanding. That for me was, was the biggest takeaway. Um, and then from a fictional point of view, I've, I've also been reading Spiway Gloria and Lovu's work. Oh, which is just, yes, it's a completely different way of handling Zimbabwean independence, you mm-hmm. know, and how we think about the past. Mm-hmm. So like she said on a panel last week, we're all stuck in the past. We're still trying to process it, you know, and I think it's very useful for us as writers to listen to other writers, to read their work and to find ways of, of resolving the past and using literature as a tool to do that. Well, thank you so much for your time, Joanne. We hope that everyone follows you on social media and most importantly, buys your book, Children of Sugar Cane. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you so much for having me, Gail and Fiona. Thank you.
Gail, Joanne is one of those wonderful interview subjects that you can just point a mic in her direction and let her go and she will fill the space with the most fascinating and entertaining material. Wasn't it incredible? I could have listened all day between the sound of her voice and the content of what she was saying and also how very little work we had to do to get interesting content from her. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So Gail, what did you get out of what Joanne had to say? So the thing that was most interesting for me is You know, I write quite shallow books. I'm not saying that to put myself down, but I I don't do deeply researched um, writing and I write quite quickly. Mm -hmm. So for me, this idea of spending nine years, 22 drafts, perfecting, researching, thinking about your story, changing the way you did your story, changing the voice, changing the beginning and the end, I'm in absolute all of it. I'm fascinated by it. It's something I want to think about. Would I benefit from slowing down and being more open to revisions? But then I've got to be honest with myself about the sort of person I am. I'm not going to do that. But I was fascinated by it. And they weren't just minor tweaks that Mm. she was talking about. Mm. It was basically a complete rewrite. She started off with a chronological narrative and she rewrote it in a completely different way. Completely different way. And it's just how people's processes are so different and how they have patience. I listened to a Ken Follett interview yesterday. When he does a rewrite, he retypes the whole book because he feels that… They're so long, his books. uh, Yeah. But he feels, he says that if he reads it, he thinks that he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. But if he retypes it, he realizes the sentence isn't right. Mm -hmm. I could use a better word here. Again, I would never do it. Never. But fascinating how different people's processes are. What did you take from Joanne? Well, I was interested in what she had to say about having a story scratching at the door. Mm. And I was thinking about how that feels as a writer to have a story scratching and then to decide whether to let it in or Mm. not. And on what basis do you make that decision and how do you and in, how do you encourage a story to come in the door? Do you have any thoughts on that? So I, I don't know if I have thoughts on how you encourage it to come in, but I have quite a physical thing about this. So the first thing is my stories scratch in a particular part of my head. Mm-hmm. They scratch at the back left-hand side of my head. <laughs> I cannot explain it, but I've got to, I'm feeling now that part of my brain is kind of, I can feel it. That's where they scratch. And then when I have a good idea, I get a tingle in the in the palms of my hands. Mm-hmm. And that's how I can separate art, a mediocre idea from a good idea. And once that tingle's happened, I kind of invite it in and I let those people come and live in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, then they occupy more than just the back left corner. And I let them brew for a while mm-hmm. before I start writing them. Okay, well, I'm still coming to terms with the thought that your head is square as corners, (laughs) but (laughs) weirdly enough, I do know what you mean. (laughs) For me, I was saying when we were chatting to Joanne um, when we weren't recording that my best ideas come to me when I'm walking, and I I love to walk, and I do walk every day. And very often one gets an idea, and you start thinking about what a great story it would make, and... A week later, it's gone. You've kind of worked it out in your head and the hunger to write it has just dissipated. Mm, It's gone. mm, mm. So for me, if that 
story is still scratching and wanting to be written weeks later, mm. if I'm waking up as excited about that idea as I was when I went to bed, then that's the one that's got legs. That's that's the story I'm going to write. Gail, do you have any writing advice for our listeners this week? So this isn't advice from me because this is something I, I was lucky enough to interview Margie Orford at Franschuk and something she said has stayed with me, that one of the first decisions she makes about writing a book is what time period it will be set over, not in the sense of when is it set, mm -hmm. but in the sense of is it an hour, is it a week, is it months, is it mm -hmm. years? Right. And she feels that's a really important decision that is going to dictate the structure of the book. I have never, ever consciously thought about that. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering perhaps if that is why I'm not an international superstar. <laughs> I've, I've been starting in the wrong place. Yeah, you know, that's a query I get from editors quite often. They suddenly will say to me, is this the weekend now? Why are they at work? Or is, is this the same day? Is this the afternoon of the same day? And very often I haven't thought it through very well. A hundred percent, Fiona, me too. My timeline is a vague and, <laughs> and nebulous thing until my editor gets hold of me. With Katie Gale, we're mm -hmm. learning to be better about it. We actually keep track of our days in comments on, on the side. Um, and I'm now trying to do it in my own writing, but I lose interest in the time. I want to tell the story. Mm -hmm. What's your writing advice for the week? Well, it ties into what I was saying earlier about creating motivation for your characters. And uh, I've read previously that there are only a few archetypal motivations in the world. For example, love, greed, which could also be interpreted as money being mm. a motivation, revenge and power. And I think those archetypes can be helpful. Think about why your character is doing what they're doing mm. and does it fit in with one of those powerful archetypes? And if it does, you've got a motivation that can really sustain the narrative. It's interesting going back to the Ken Follett interview that I listened to yesterday. He says he starts his characters there. What is their motivation? And once you know that, you understand how they're going to behave throughout the book. So very interesting. Well, if anybody has read Joanne Joseph's books or followed her in the media, if you're interested or inspired by what she's got to say, if you have thought about what motivates a character or what kind of time span to set your story across, please get in touch with us. We're on all social media. You can email us. Our email's in the show notes. We are now also on Facebook. We have a busy and lively discussion group on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Please join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.